talk about the Christ of Christmas this morning. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, one simple verse. It says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. When the fullness of time had come. How many of you remember the great anticipation that you had as a child when it came to Christmas? That anticipation that you just couldn't wait for that Christmas morning to, to realize all the goodies and all the things that you were, had been waiting on. It seemed like since the 4th of July, you'd been just in complete anticipation of Christmas morning, and you couldn't wait it for the fullness of time to get there for it to be Christmas morning. When I was a boy, I remember hearing the phrase, this is uh, so-and-so is as slow as Christmas. And you would, you'd think about how, how long it seemed like for Christmas to get there. How many of you as an adult can honestly say that you still have that same anticipation about the Christmas holiday? You still just can't wait. Be honest. If, you, if you're still that adult who has that, that you just sense of anticipation, you can't wait for it. I can remember Christmas was always... Um, we had these family traditions that you just marked everything by. And on Christmas Eve, that afternoon, we would go to my grandmother's um, in Spring Garden, my dad's mom. And we would go and we would have this wonderful meal there together. And then we would all, as a family, we would exchange gifts together. And, and it's in the same house that Mickey and Tony live in now. And, and, but as soon as that was over with, there was this great anticipation in my heart as a boy because I knew when we left my grandmother and granddaddy's house, I knew that it was, it was on. I knew Santa was somewhere, and I, was just, I, I couldn't wait. And I would get home, and I would go home, and I would go to bed. And it was when you remember that, that sense of, I need to go to sleep, but I can't go to sleep. And I, I just, I don't know what to do. And you would lay there and you would toss and you would turn and you would fret. And you'd, you would, you know, they'd tell you, if you don't go to sleep, Santa can't come. And so I, I was just sitting there trying to, you know, force myself to sleep or talk myself into going to sleep. And it's that anticipation that was building in my mind and in my heart. And I can remember some very, you know, finally drifting off to sleep and, and, and waking up that Christmas morning and going into... Um, where the Christmas tree was, and there this miraculous sight that Santa came in the night, and somehow there, uh, while I was asleep, he assembled a pinball machine and left it there for me, and I'm just that wide-eyed wonder, and for months, nobody can, nobody can go back to sleep because I'm up playing pinball all the time. But that sense of anticipation, that sense of wonder that we had as a child, that waiting on that time to come. And this verse reminds me so much of how the birth of Jesus, the whole entirety of the universe, had been, in, had been anticipating this moment ever since the words had been breathed, let there be life. And let there be life. And, and, and ever since God breathed in, uh, into creation, that there was this sense of anticipation among all of eternity waiting on this one 
moment to come when Jesus Christ would enter into this world, God himself would enter into this world, taking on the form of flesh and being born of a virgin. And so the great anticipation this time of year, it is a time of rejoicing. It's a time of bright-eyed children. It's a time of giving and receiving gifts, eating a lot of delicious food and visiting relatives and friends. But it would have very little depth and very little meaning apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is, it's this birth date that we celebrate this season of the year, and it's the Christ of Christmas that is the subject of what we talk about this morning. In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, is a reminder to us that not only now during this time of year, but every day of the year we should be with a sense of anticipation knowing that Christ is our Savior and knowing that He came to redeem us from sin. So Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 is about an, an anticipation. It's about anticipating the Christ of Christmas coming. So the Christ of Christmas, from birth to his present status, is a revelation from God. Everything about the New Testament and the story of, of Jesus is a revelation of God. And in Christ's birth, we can see the power of God to rise above the natural and to display himself in a miraculous way. This baby in Bethlehem, that we're talking about this morning, this baby in Bethlehem that had been anticipated for thousands of years is the greatest miracle of all time. Think about this. Jesus Christ was preexistent. He existed before anything that had ever been created. He had existed for all of eternity. That's hard for us to wrap our minds around but he actually spoke everything that was in existence into, into being. And now, this great miracle is that the one who was present before all is now in an earthly existence. And he was the, uh, he's the eternal God in the form of a fleshly child. Think about that. The eternal God in the form of a fleshly child. You see, God is eternal. Jesus said he's the Alpha and Omega. He's everything. There is no existence of time with him. But yet he chose to come into this world to be born. And what do we know if we are born? What is the one certainty about us? We're going to die. So Jesus came, the Son of God came, the Son of God who is eternal came giving up everything to be born into a world where the only certainty for every person ever born is this, you're going to die. He came knowing this and, and th knowing that that would be his existence. No one but an omnipresent God could do this. And so we see the power of God to, ri to rise above all of this and to come into this earth. This baby in Bethlehem was born of a virgin without an earthly father. This also shows God at work in an unusual way. No one but God had all power 
to do this. Only He's the only one who had the power to be able to break a natural law and to bring someone into the world as he did Jesus Christ. The baby in Bethlehem is a proof of God's fulfillment of prophecy. Hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, God had promised such an event and he didn't leave anything to chance. Now what if in the Old Testament it was just very vague and it said that someday somewhere on the earth there would be a Savior born. Pretty vague. Just somewhere there buried in the Old Testament scriptures a prophet might say, hey one of these days somebody's going to be born somewhere and he's going to be the Savior of all the world. Well that's pretty vague. God didn't leave anything to chance, did he? Because in Malachi, he says, he tells us that this baby's going to be born in Bethlehem. In Isaiah, he tells us specifically, this baby is going to be conceived of a virgin birth. All throughout the scriptures, all throughout the Old Testament prophecies, he gives us intricate details about Jesus Christ and his birth and about all that would come about as a result. And nothing was left to chance with God. He, he spelled out every minor detail. And this is a revelation of God's knowledge, and the fact that only He has the ability to carry out such a plan. Nothing was left to chance. So in Christ's birth, we see the power of God, and then in Christ's life, we see the nature and characteristics of God at work. How does the Bible describe God? The Bible describes God in one word. God is what? God is love. Is there anyone who has ever walked the face of the earth where that love was brought to fruition more than through the life of Jesus Christ? Jesus was the great example of the love of God here in, in the flesh. The Bible speaks of God as love, and no greater revelation of love can be found than Jesus Christ, because He loved all, without exception and without condition. In Luke chapter 15 and verse 13, the writer says this, Greater love hath no one than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friend. Greater love hath no one than a man would lay down his life for his friend. Jesus Christ gladly and with love in his heart and with love in every bit of his being laid down his life for humanity. This, in this divisive world, Jesus is all-inclusive. Regardless of what labels or categories we may put on other people, Jesus died for everyone and he loves everyone equally and the same without exception. God is no respecter of persons. In the life of Jesus, we see the validity of such a statement. In Him, the worth of each person is emphasized. He loved everyone the same. And not only did He love, but He sought people to show His love too. Think about a hated tax collector named Zacchaeus. Everyone in his community hated him. No one wanted to be around him or to have anything to do with him. Jesus comes through his community with a great crowd of people following him, and he stops and seeks out this greedy man who's been robbing the people in his, in his own community 
And he looks up and says, Zacchaeus, this day, I've got to be in your house to eat. Whoa. Think about an adulterous woman who is brought before Jesus and thrown down at his feet. And he's, and he's asked, what does the law command? And Jesus shows great wisdom and mercy to this woman. And as all those her accusers leave, he looks at her with great love and says what? Go and sin no more. Think about a woman at the well who encounters Jesus Christ one day. He said, I have to. He didn't have to go through Samaria. He said, I have to. He said, he told, his, he told those guys with him, he said, Ge- geographically, I can go another direction, but spiritually, I have to go through Samaria. There's no other way for me to go today because there's a woman there who feels like no other man in the world loves her, and I've got to go and show her that God loves her and redeem her life. He surrounded himself with the sick and the lame and the outcast. He is the greatest example of love that has ever been or ever will be, and we see it in his life. So we see that in his life, and then we see in his death that we can see the sacrifice of God to redeem a lost people. In Jesus, God died physically, but he also died spiritually to pay the price of our sin. We know that the wages of sin is death. This death is physical. As we've already established this morning, the one thing that every one of us in this room have in common is that we're headed to an appointment with death. And we know that Jesus died a death on a cross. But he also died a spiritual death because there was a separation from God for those hours that he was there on the cross. Jesus paid the full price both physically and spiritually. As Jesus was there in the Garden of Gethsemane on his knees and he was saying to the Father, if there's any other way that you can take this cup from me, take it. But if not, your will be done. As Jesus is there praying in that great agony, he understands the physical part of what's going to happen to him the next day. He understands completely all of the agony and physical pain that he will go through, but what matters more to him is the agony of being spiritually separated from the Father for those hours of being on the cross. Because God cannot look at sin, and Jesus out in those hours would bear every sin that would ever be committed in the history of the world. And God had to look away. And that is the greatest pain of all of, of what Jesus suffered through were those agonizing hours on the cross being spiritually separated from God. You see, we're all going to die physically, but what we want to avoid is to die spiritually. You see, when Jesus came, when the Holy Spirit spoke to my soul and pointed me to Jesus, at that moment I was born spiritually. What we say is born again. And I knew, I know from that moment on, I will never face that spiritual death of being separated from God for eternity. Never. I don't have to worry about ever knowing the agony of never being able to get to God spiritually. And that is 
we, in Jesus' death, we see that he paid the price for us so that when we physically die, we're still spiritually alive. Jesus shed his blood for the remission of our sin. And from the beginning of time, we know that blood sacrifice has played a major role in the atonement of sin. We see the children of Israel as they are about to leave Egypt and as they take and they, and they sacrifice a lamb at the Passover meal and they take that blood and they put it on their doorpost so that when the angel walks through, they will, he will know that their sins have been atoned for. And just as that had happened there, Jesus died being a sacrifice once and for all. And apart from this sacrifice, there is no remission of sin. Unless we accept the sacrifice that Jesus made, we don't have remission or forgiveness of sin. So in his death, we see the sacrifice of God to redeem his people, but then in his resurrection, and in his ascension, and in his intercession, we can see God as mighty, as ruling, and as victorious. Think about the resurrection. What does the resurrection reveal to us? The resurrection reveals to us the power of God over death and the grave. The power of God over death and the grave. I do a lot of funerals. And I stand and I, I speak about a lot of people who pass from this life. And we, we always speak about the mixed emotions of that moment of being there. There's emotions of sorrow about the person who has passed on and the fact that we're not with them physically anymore. But there are emotions of great joy among us also because we know that if that person has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and forgiveness of their sins, that person, when they took their last breath, as Paul tells us in Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be what? To be present with the Lord. Their soul immediately went to be with the Lord. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ shows us that God and God alone has the power over death and the grave because someday, if we die in Christ, this old physical fat body is someday going to be raised victoriously over death in the grave. When Jesus arose from the grave, he broke that power, and it reveals the power of God. Then Jesus, after a, after a short time, ascended back to the Father. He left this earth ascending into the heavens. And it reveals to us that God has the power over time and over physical laws. Only God has that power. And now Jesus sits in intercession. He sits at the right hand of the Father. And not only does he hear my prayers, listen to me. Not only does he hear my prayers, but he prays to God for me in my situations. He looks at my situations and prays to the Father for me. When no one else may know my situation, Jesus knows my situation. And he's sitting right next to God the Father and he's telling him, this is what Michael's going through. Pointing it out to him. And when nobody else may be praying, Jesus is interceding for me. Y'all don't get it, do you? <laughs> Man, the Methodists should have woke up and heard y'all on that one. Jesus, the intercession, reveals God and His concern for people of all time. He's concerned about me. 
He gave his life for me. And now he sits with God the Father and he's concerned about me and he talks to God for me. And then in Jesus, someday Jesus is going to return. And in his soon coming again, we can see the cleansing and ruling of Jesus Christ. He's not coming back as a baby in a manger. He's not coming back as a helpless child. He's coming back as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the Prince of peace. And he's going to put everything in order and everything for eternity the way that it should be, the way that God intended in his creation. Now, I want to, I want to mention, I heard a wonderful sermon this week from Matt Chandler. And Matt brought this out. He said that the return of Christ is mentioned eight times more in scriptures than the birth of Christ. The return of Christ is mentioned eight times more than the birth of Christ. Which tells me this. We should have an urgency, a sense of urgency, in not only telling people about the birth of Jesus, but about the imminent return of Jesus. Because he's coming back for his church, and we need to be prepared. So, we see that the Christ of Christmas, from birth to his present status, interceding for us in heaven, is a revelation from God. And then the Christ of Christmas is worthy of a lofty place in the lives of all people. Jesus is worthy of worship. And we come here this morning to worship Him. We worship Him through our singing and through our praise. We worship Him through our fellowship together. We worship Him through our study of the Word together. We worship Him by being corporately yoked together and looking out for each other and loving each other and taking care of each other the way that He intended for us to do. To worship Jesus Christ correctly which is in spirit and in truth, means that first of all, we have to surrender our lives to Him for salvation. It means that there was a point to where I said, this life that is mine is no longer mine, but I give this life to you, and I want to live the rest of my life allowing you to be in control of my life. That's total surrender. And that's salvation. And so when we worship Him, we worship Him, first of all, correctly through salvation. When Jesus becomes our personal Savior, then His purpose, we are celebrating His purpose of coming into the world for that reason, to save us. And Christ is to be worshipped privately the year round, but He is also to be worshipped publicly in the church throughout the year. We're to gather here together to strengthen one another and to find a source of common strength together in the Lord Jesus Christ and then to leave here and to be able to tell others about Christ. He's to be worshipped in adoration. We sing the song, O come let us adore Him. And we ought to adore Him because when we see Him, not as a baby lying in a manger, but as we see him for who he really is as being God. Jesus Christ is God. Now that is the phrase that most utterly upsets the world to no end. 
They want Jesus to be our teacher. They want Jesus to be our prophet. They want Jesus to be a good guy who lived a couple of thousand years ago. But when I say from a pulpit and I proclaim that Jesus Christ is God, it inflames the world. They don't want to hear that. But Jesus said this in John 14, 6, and it's what we base our whole existence on. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through me. Not you can find me as one of the ways, or I'm one of the options, but I am the way. So when we see him in that way, then we can properly adore him. And we see him as a savior, and we have reverent admiration for him. He's to be worshipped and praised. Every Christian is to praise his name, to praise the name of Jesus. We're to praise his works, the works that he's done in our lives. We're to tell other people about those. We're to praise his love, the fact that he loved us enough to give his life for us. And then we praise his redeeming grace for redeeming us from our sin, for paying our sin debt for us on a cross. He's to be worshipped and praised, to be exalted because of our love for Him and our appreciation for Him. He's worthy of all of our life and all of our possessions. I heard David Platt this past week also preach a sermon on mission. And he talked about how God is probably not going to, 99% of us, He's not going to say to us, I want you to sell every position possession that you have I want you to give up your home and everything and I want you to go to the, a foreign place but he saved us with the recognition that if he did we should be willing to do that because he's worthy of it in Jesus our life is at its very best think about that in Jesus your life is at its very best Apart from him, it is inferior. Now, you're looking at me and you're saying, boy, if that's the very best he has to offer, then I don't know. But boy, you ought to see me before I had Jesus. I was a wreck. I was a train wreck. At least I'm on the right track now. But with him, we're at our very best. And in him, our life is what it should be. And apart from him, it's less than the best. In him, we should know that our possessions in our life are sanctified. They're set apart. And that if he chooses to use us in such a way that our life and everything we have can be multiplied for his kingdom. So he's worthy of our life and everything we have. And he's also worthy of our recognition and our, our consultation. It should be natural. Listen to me as I close. If Jesus Christ has forgiven you of your sins, and if He is Lord and Savior of your life, He has taken up residence in your life, the, natural, the first natural response of that should be that you want to tell other people about it. That should be the first natural response. You may not be given a platform uh, from a pulpit to do it, 
but with your life every day you have the opportunity to tell others about what Jesus Christ did for you. And if he is Savior of your life, then it's the first natural reaction is to want to tell other people. I told the story, I believe it was this past Wednesday or maybe this past Sunday evening in our Bible study about having a child for the first time and, and, and being there in the delivery room. Um, nowadays, they, they, they'll fill the delivery room up with folks. You can just go in, video the whole, the whole thing. But being there in that delivery room when my first son was born and watching that miracle and being there and snipping the umbilical cord and watching them wash him up and clean him up and then wrap him real tight and I'm watching the whole thing and then all of a sudden they hand him to me. And I realize and they tell me that I'm to walk him from there down to the nursery and put him in the little bassinet there behind the glass. And I realize when they hand him to me he's mine but as I'm walking down that hallway and it's just me and Grayson I also realize I look at him and I say Look, man, I don't have a clue. <laughs> I don't know what to do. I don't have a clue. I, I, I felt like I owed him a, an apology for, for God putting him in the house that he put him in because nobody had a clue. And my dad didn't make it any better as he poked me in the chest and said, don't mess this up. Listen, I didn't know what to do. When I laid him in that bassinet and I went around to the window and I looked at him, I didn't know what to do, but I knew this, I couldn't wait to tell people. Could not wait to get on the phone and call my friends at work and say, he's here. That was the natural reaction of a father. See, when, 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 when Jesus came into my life, when he, he kicked the door open, and he left me no choice, he reached and grabbed me hard. And I didn't know what to do. Really, I, I just didn't know what to do except to surrender. But I do remember this. I wanted to tell somebody. I wanted to let somebody know. I wanted to let somebody know that I was a Christian now. And I'll never forget walking into work that next morning and going in. And I wanted uh, Ron Reynolds, who was a pastor. He was a pastor at Providence Baptist Church at that time. And I loved Ron, but I was, I was so disrespectful to Ron. Um, and the way that I talked around him and the way, that the, the way that I lived around him, but I couldn't wait to tell Ron Reynolds that I was a Christian. And when I walked up to Ron and I looked at Ron in the eye and I said, Ron, I got saved last night. And he looked down at me and he said, well, at least the Lord wants you. <laughs> but he put his hands on my shoulder and he told me, he said, I'll be with you. I'll help you in any way I can. And some of my very first preaching appointments were, Ron Reynolds gave me at Providence and it helped me to learn how to preach the, the things that he did for me. And I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't help but want to be around God's people. I wanted to be at church. I wanted to be around God's people all the time. This Jesus, this baby that was born into this world and who lived and gave his life and died for me, I wanted to be around other people who, who felt the same way. And I can remember... Um, I I just uh, I would call Randon Bobby Joe, and if there was a homecoming or there was a revival or there was something, we just get in, we go. We went to every homecoming dinner in the county there for a while, 
But we just we just went to church. It's what we did. He's worthy. He's worthy of us wanting to be. He's worthy of us wanting to recognize him. He's worthy of us giving him praise. He's worthy of us telling other people about him. It's natural to want to tell people about Christ, and then it's beneficial for you the rest of your Christian existence. It's beneficial for you to be communicating with him, talking to him, and telling him about your life and sharing what your plans are and asking him, do these plans align with what you have for my life? Does this plan, is it your will for my life? He's worthy of that. He's worthy of a lofty place in the lives of his people. He's not just to be put out on display at Christmas in a nativity scene and then boxed up and put away for 11 other months and out of sight. He's to be at the forefront of our life every single day and in every decision that we make. That's where Jesus should be. And this morning, I want you to know and understand that during this time of the year as we celebrate that this Christ of Christmas is God, creator and ruler of this universe, and that he has all power and all authority, and that he can change your life completely and radically forever if you surrender to him. We're going to have a time of invitation right now, a time of reflection, a time of worship. I want you to use this time wisely. If you're here this morning and you're listening to my voice and you, you hear what I say but you don't quite get it, but you want to, I'm right here. I have scripture and I can show you beyond a shadow of a doubt how to leave here today and how to know Jesus Christ as your Savior.